there's one thing we should definitely talk about, and that's that we passed 300 packages adopting documentation this last week. Oh, that's great news. Yeah. I was meaning to take a look at that the other day, actually, but uh, I, you beat me to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have this little um, spreadsheet where I track over time the number of packages that we have and also the number of packages adopting documentation. And I so we launched this almost nine months ago, and we have now 5.5% of all packages uh, opting into documentation hosting. Uh-huh. And now these are opting in, not, not ones that actually opt in via pointing to their own documentation. So there's probably a, a few more that have documentation links on the site, but that, you know, the docs, we aren't hosting the docs for them. But I, I kind of thought back when we launched this, I mean, we never talked about any goals or ideas we might have with respect to how many we'd expect over a certain amount of time. But I thought at the time, because I was, I had been tracking how many packages have an spi.yaml file in their project for quite a while now. Um, and that had been around 5%, I think, at the time we launched the documentation hosting. And I thought it would be really amazing if we'd managed to get 5% on board within a year or something. And I think that's probably that's probably way more than to be expected. Uh-huh. So here we are, nine, nine months and a bit. I know actually less, eight months and a bit. And it's five and a half percent. I thought that's really great. Um, so adoption has been really great by authors. The, the traffic is also great to see. So this is, you know, not just the adoption. People are are using it. So the the traffic on the documentation pages is, um, I think, of the order of ten percent, which is significant. And just in my own use, whenever I do backend stuff, because there's quite a few packages that we're using that have documentation and host it with us. My way of looking up documentation really is search for the package with my little Raycast shortcut that makes that really easy. Go to the package page, click through to the documentation, and then that's how I browse documentation for packages. And I think that's that's a great sign that, that I actually want to use it that way. And that for me, there's a couple of cases where I've opened pull requests in for packages that have their own documentation but didn't have a documentation link on our site. So they still host it themselves. And I... I opened a pull request to at least point the, the documentation link to their site so just to make it very easy and, you know, a common entry point into documentation. That's what I really like. There's, I exactly know where to go right. and where to check when there's, whether there's documentation. And I think that's, that's really great. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's remarkable that we've got that level of adoption. Um, to get 5% of packages just having documentation it is a landmark uh, let alone for it to, for, for us to be the host of five percent I, I think it's a, a a real testament to the fact that people are actually using Doxy um, and I think the, the more I use Doxy the more I like the tool it's a really nice documentation tool and I think that is proven out by the fact that people are really using it they're really adding documentation and and then, of course, for them to use us to host it is a is a cherry on the top. But but I think I think the Doxy team deserve a lot of credit for what they've done. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really easy to get started with documentation because it's interesting. I think the difficult part in documentation is the hosting bit. You know, we've sort of shipped this thing to take that pain away, and and once that's gone, it is really just a matter of. I mean, obviously doing the legwork and adding the documentation to your um, 
uh, functions and methods and structs and classes and so on. But also it's very easy to add like entry. I think what's really important and key for documentation is to have a little entry page that, that explains the package and guides you to the symbols that are actually relevant, right? A, a wall of symbols isn't really helpful as documentation. Just a little markdown page that, that points to you know, getting started topics and, and you know, these are the, the key entities that you need to know about you know, when you're using this, when you're using this package, I think that's really important. And that's also very easy to do because all it takes is, is create a markdown file, um, drop it in the folder structure and, and off you go. And because it's so easy to do that part of it, I think that really plays into, into Doxy's hands here and in having so many packages um, with documentation available. The one thing I'm a little surprised about is how the word is spreading about this, because yes, we have a little note on our add a package page that says, once you've added your package, don't forget, we can build your documentation for you. But apart from that, we've not really talked about it very much. And we've talked about it on the podcast, but I don't see, I don't see where the word is spreading. And I'd be interested to know how the word is spreading. I guess it must be in some, at some level, word of mouth. Yeah. Uh, because on a package page, like if you add your package to the index, if you look at that package page, there's there's actually not much to tell you as a package author that we would build your documentation. You'd have to go and either go back to that add a package page or um, is it mentioned on the um, information for package maintainers? I don't think it is actually. We should probably do that. I thought we had a link. I'm not sure though. Ah, we do. Yes, we do. One thing I think we could do perhaps should do is uh, because I think the spi.yaml file is discovered. Well, not the YAML file, but the, um, the badges and the build system are discovered by, by just having the badges in on your package page, right? So because it exposes it to GitHub. So if you browse a package on GitHub and you see the badge and you're interested in the badge, that links back to us. So we have sort of extending our, you know, service surface in a sense, because on GitHub, we're also um, exposed via the platform support and Swift version support links. And I think that spreads, you know, I know in the past when I saw a badge that I'd never seen before, I was curious, well, how, how did they get coverage on this? And then obviously when you inspect the badge, you see, ah, oh, this is this service um, that's being used to populate the data and, and create the badge. And I think that's how people discover the badges. I think what we could do is also have a documentation badge that links, you know, recreates our doc button on the, our package page to also be available as a click target on a plain and simple GitHub page, which would then obviously, if you don't have it and you just recognize it and see it, would also lead you to investigate how that badge is um, uh, created or you know how it's being used. And that badge would link straight through to the documentation for that package? I suppose it could, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep, that's a good idea. The other thing that we could do is, as one of our nightly tasks, we could start looking at every package in the index and you could actually <laughs> start to figure out whether they had documentation comments and if they did open a pull request <laughs> with an SBI YAML. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be, or it would look at least for Doxy, um, you know, the Doxy pages. I think that'll be a very strong yeah. signal as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a, that's another, maybe we could at least, you know, prompt authors to ask if they're interested and and having it hosted, yeah, exactly. I wasn't, I wasn't really meaning it as a, as a, as a completely serious suggestion. But um, 
but you know what we could actually do is we could we could start potentially flagging somewhere not 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 doing anything with the repository but flagging somewhere that after a build if there are if, if there appear to be ducks in doc, compatible documentation we could start flagging that to ourselves somewhere to, to maybe see if that's something worth pursuing yeah yeah that, that's interesting yeah there was another little thing slightly related to documentation that i worked on last week that i thought might be interesting to talk about and that is a doc archive uh, size histogram. So we've talked about um, our doc uploader for quite a bit in the past. This is not about the doc up uploader itself. It's about the issue that we were mm -hmm. addressing with it. And that's that um, doc archives vary in size quite significantly. And um, we'd seen a handful of repositories that had lots of documentation, both in megabyte size and, and file count. But we had no real good idea how many there really are. What's the distribution across all these 300 packages with documentation? How many are there, you know, where it's like really small and how many are there where it's like 100 megabytes or more? So we had this task in the back of our minds for quite a while now to actually log that and, and report it back to the server. And we've done that. So we have collected the data. But, you know, it doesn't stop there. You just then want to um, visualize that somehow, create a histogram. So you can see the distribution of sizes and, and file counts across the different packages. You know, how many are there in the various buckets? And I, that was really interesting because I've done a lot of graphing and reporting, graphical reporting in the past. So, and my go-to tool has always been Python, Matplotlib, and then sometimes ReportLab to create PDF reports out of various graphs. But it's, it's always been this tool, Matplotlib, pretty much all the time to create graphs. Jupyter Notebooks, which is sort of like a Python playgrounds kind of thing where you can interactively create um, little Python snippets and create a little program that then creates graphs or whatever it is. I mean, Python, uh, Jupyter supports all manner of things that you can throw into a Python script. But this time around, I thought, well, let's, you know, we're in, in Swift land. <laughs> uh, let's, let's use Swift because Swift Charts has been introduced last year at WWDC and I hadn't actually used it for anything. So I thought, well, I'm I'm just going to throw this into a little Swift chart real quick. And I found there's actually a histogram class or struct that comes with the package. So it's very easy to just take data and uh, throw it into this thing, add, add it all wholesale, and um, then have created a histogram. Just give it the, the bin count that you want and the, the range that you want it to, um, to graph. And then you can draw that into um, a Swift UI chart. And then that obviously is very easy to add into a uh, Swift UI canvas. So effectively what I did is I threw these two charts together, both the megabyte size histogram and the file count histogram and threw that into a, a canvas. And that was really easy to do. I mean, it was, I was done by the time I'd probably be done setting up my Python environment again, because I hadn't used Python in quite a while. And it's always a bit of a pain setting up Python virtual environments and then matplotlib you typically need to compile because it has C modules and all that. So it's if you're not set up for this, it can, can take a bit of time to, to actually get started. So this was really smooth and, and really great. It, it looked fantastic. So the output was really good. And then I thought, well, I, I should, A, I should post about this. So I, I posted about this and Mastodon showed a little graph and there was, was really interested in that. And people asked, well, can you actually create a PDF from this? And then I looked around a bit and obviously on Paul Hudson's Hacking with Swift page, there is a snippet that explains how you create a PDF from 
a SwiftUI view, which was also very easy. So I have a playground with a button to export a PDF of that view. And that is effectively the same thing you can do in Jupyter, all in Swift, really high quality. In fact, I think the PDF is unique in the sense that it is resizable. So this is a, it's not a rasterized PDF. You can actually select the text uh -huh. and zoom in and you, yeah, really high quality zoom. There's no stairs or anti-aliasing or anything, which I think is the case with Jupyter. So I was really, really pleasantly surprised with the outcome of this little experiment. And I can really recommend if you have something to chart, a simple and quick thing, give Swift charts a go and a Swift playground because that might be all you need. What's also really great about this is um, if, if you've done any sort of data processing in Python, the, it's really nice on one hand that Python doesn't have strong typing and that you can just throw data at it. But once you reach a certain level of complexity with your data, it's also very easy to get confused about which slice of data should I be looking at? Am I actually looking at this dictionary or am I looking at the nested dictionary in the dictionary? Because beyond the first level of nesting, you get hopelessly confused about where you actually are. Whereas in Swift, you can strongly type all these things. So you know exactly what object you're looking at. You can, you can be sure that value you're plotting here is a certain type because you've, you've made that type yourself and you don't get confused when you look at the data. I saw you talking about this and, and I think you also mentioned that it was maybe not faster, but a, a similar amount of time that it took you to create these histograms as it would have done in Python. Oh yeah. I mean, the, if someone is, is set up to do this in Python, I think the, the effort is, is pretty much th the same, you know, because you have a, a very simple data structure uh -huh. that you pipe into a histogram. And it's a really great use of a Swift playground, actually. Yeah, I love that. I mean, yeah, it's you, you, you see the data. All, I mean, it's effectively just like Jupyter, and that that's what I love about Jupyter as well, because you get this immediate feedback. There's no um, build run loop really. I mean, under the hood, it is of course, but it's hidden away, and it's so immediate that you don't really notice it. That makes it a really pleasant experience, and you can even more so, I think, in Python, because in Python the results you sort of need to rerun the sheet if I remember correctly, but in Swift UI, the view actually sits off to the side. And if you modify, modify the page a bit, uh, the page layout, and that's very easy to do then and has a really nice feedback cycle where you have the view to the side that shows you the page, what it looks like and gives you this, this really good control over what your uh, result is and the output. And obviously more so than matplotlib in Swift UI, you have the full power of Swift UI at your disposal right you can you can overlay this thing with anything because you can have a z stack and then put stuff on top of your graph next to your graph all your layout commands are available to you and i think that's amazing that's that's a really great environment to work on this kind of thing and is it worth talking about the results that you found uh yeah maybe briefly <laughs> all the generation of them that was interesting <laughs> Well, I think we didn't talk about the results all that much because luckily, I mean, what it showed is a very steep drop-off. So really, we don't need to be that concerned about size per se because it's it's effectively just three packages, well, two packages where one has two versions, like the default branch and the tagged version has a very large doc set and, and another package which only has a default branch version, I believe. So it's really only three doc sets that 
are large um, or a bit too large, uh, to be honest. And all the rest, I think, are, are below 100 megabytes, certainly below our 500 megabytes cutoff. So we, there aren't any packages that we're currently tracking that are above our cutoff. And we have special case the one right. because it's Swift syntax um, to actually onboard it beyond our normal cutoff. So it has a special cutoff. But we're not, we're not dropping lots of packages due to that, which is good to know. When are we getting Swift charts for the web? That's my question. <laughs> it's actually interesting because once you have PDF or a way to create PDF, it's very easy to you know just create a PNG or whatever you want for the web, right? Even an SVG, yeah. Yeah. Is there something to create SVG from Swift UI? Probably not directly, right? But maybe via PDF? Might be an interesting little... Um... Potentially via PDF, yeah. I don't think there would be anything directly from SwiftUI to, uh, to, to SVG, but yes, maybe. Yeah. The next version of the site will be built entirely with SwiftUI. <laughs> so the only thing that I had for news this week is a little refactoring, actually, but it's not worth talking about, I think. So whenever we add new pages to the site or new things to the site, there's always that question of... Does it need a bit more design? Does it need a little bit more, like, does it need any custom UI? Can, can it fit in with the rest of the site? And over time, we had a few little things that were all custom, that were all built just in whatever, whatever mood I was in that day. It wasn't a terrible mess, but we had a couple of little things that, that were like that. And at the end of the supporters page that we talked about on the last episode, I noticed that, again, I'd built one more little kind of box to click on, uh, which would take people out to our GitHub sponsors link. And I thought, well, I wonder if there's a, there's a few of these across the site. And so I did a little bit of refactoring on the design side of things and, and made what I've called a panel button, which is a cross between a kind of panel of information and it also acts as a button uh, in itself. And we're now using those across the site in a few places, mainly on the home page and then once on the supporters page. And it's uh, basically just a little panel. It's not designed to be huge. If you look on the home page, the, the four panels that you see there, the podcast link, the link to our supporters page and the two advertising sponsors links that we have on the home page there they are now all uh panel buttons and the reason i'm mentioning really is it's the kind of thing that now gives us the ability to know that we have that design element that we can use potentially elsewhere we don't have a formal design system the design side of things is really only me working on that as so i'm not we're not dealing with teams of designers who all need to, to be able to do something consistently. But it is nice to occasionally come back and say, what common elements are we doing common tasks with and seeing if we can actually create some kind of standard for that across the site. And so that was a little uh, enhancement that went uh, live since we last spoke about, uh, about the supporters page. Right. I think that covers the news, doesn't it? It does. Shall we do some packages? Yeah, I can kick us off this week with a package called Yorkie. And this may be a very UK-centric reference, but the only Yorkie I knew before now was a chocolate bar in the UK when I was a kid. <laughs> it's nothing to do with chocolate bars. Instead, it is a an SDK for building real-time collaborative applications. And the reason that this stood out to me is that a common conversation between you and I and a common uh, research topic from you and I has been for a collaborative markdown editor. And actually, just to go off on a slight little tangent for a second, we have actually found one recently that we have been using for a couple of little things, and I quite like, actually. It's called HackMD, and, and that's, that's our current uh, best guess at it. But 
but it's not perfect. And so this Yorkie iOS SDK is for a tool called Yorkie, and it's an open source um, server that you can run yourself. If you want to, you want to stand up a server yourself, you can run this Yorkie server, uh, and it basically helps you create real-time collaborative editing. I don't think it's specific on what the, the thing that is being edited is. It is more the mechanism to help you with that. And I haven't looked into Yorkie itself more than that, but I did think, I didn't think it was, uh, it was maybe our next project idea to, uh, <laughs> to, to finally solve that, uh, markdown edits problem. And maybe Yorkie is the way that we do it. So the, the package got added to the package index this week. Um, and, and it stood out to me as, uh, as, as something interesting. Nice. Yeah. I've seen, uh, Simon. Help me out. What's his last name? Uh, Stuffring. Stuffring, exactly. Um, he uh, he's currently porting Brunstone to the Mac, so I think slowly but surely all the pieces are coming into play. I also saw Joe Heck. Um, I saw that too. Yeah. Blog posting, blogging about um, CRDTs again. So I think I think the stars are slowly coming into alignment. That hopefully someone will <laughs> will put it all together and create a really native and nice markdown. Uh, editor that allows you to collaborate and work on documents across the web with comments and all that because I, I'm, yeah, I'm not super happy with HackMD. The main problem for me is that when you lose connection, you can't even edit it locally. But yeah, I, I especially a native client would be really great. So maybe this is the tool to, yeah. to go for. Interesting, your key. A native client would be great, but it has to support, like table stakes for me is that it has to support commenting and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. there's a lot of work in adding those kind of features and a lot of collaborative editors don't go that far. Yeah. And so, um, uh, yeah, I agree Hack, that HackMD has its limitations, but it's certainly, it's the best I've used so far. But there is, I think there is actually a serious opportunity here for somebody to build a tool like this. I do not think this is a solved problem. No, I really hope someone else. I mean, let this be, once everyone's done with their Mastodon clients, <laughs> let, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> right, so that's my first package. Excellent. My first pick is called Potent Codables by, well, it's just Outfox, which is a company. And this is a package to deal with, well, codable, encoding, decoding of... Um, of data and uh, obviously the the big days of <laughs> custom codable implementations is sort of gone since are uh, over since codable shipped with uh, swift yeah i had to check the date for a second there <laughs> uh, when did codable ship was that swift just swift 5 i don't know it's been or swift 4 even i don't remember it's it's been in the language so long and is the go-to way of really you know dealing with data encoding and decoding but there are cases where you need something more, and, and this is a package that gives you more. So one example that immediately springs to mind is something we had to do recently. So we have two different JSON files. I mean, different in the sense the content is different, but the, the schema is the same. So they have the same shape, and we need to merge them together. Now, we, we know one top-level key, and all the entities below that key, we, we want to merge together. But because we don't know the rest of the document structure, we can't really write out the codable to read those in, merge them, and write them out again, right? If we only defined that one top-level key that we're interested in, we'd be stripping out all the other data that's part of the thing. So codable doesn't really work here. What we're using right now is the, the you know, the normal 
um, Jason's Serializable, I think it's called, the, f the foundation class that deals with JSON encoding and decoding just generically and uh, you know, not with any, where you don't need to define the struct up front. You can just load it in, look for your keys and then merge it. And this package does the same thing. It also interfaces with Codable. So it's a bit of a, a mix of both. And it also comes with support for both JSON, YAML and other formats. So if you have this particular mix of requirements, this might be a, an interesting package for you, for instance, if you need to write both JSON and YAML. You could use just this package rather than, you know, use the normal foundation codable and then, you know, YAMs for YAML encoding. Gotcha. Um, and obviously it also supports a couple of other formats that might be interesting to you. It also promises easier implementation of custom serialization formats. So if you have needs for that, this might be interesting to you. It does come with extensive docs, so that's that's always nice. And it supports all platforms that we are testing for, so all all of Apple's platforms as well as Linux. So this looks like a really nice package if you have encoding, decoding needs that go a bit beyond of what uh, Foundation or Swift as a language provides. And that's Potent Codables by Outfox. I think it's also a great confirmation that the problem of passing data between systems will never be solved. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the default format, JSON, which pretty much is the default, has has its problems, right? If you start the most space-saving of formats around, so if, if that's your constraint, um, this package has uh -huh. other options. I think there are specifically you know, binary formats that are specifically made to be a little bit, bit more compact. Although I do feel we're in we're in a pretty good state these days where JSON has become really a standard for doing this kind of thing, and everyone's everyone's kind of settled on it, and it feels like a fellow, relatively calm a relatively calm uh, situation for, for for data import and export between uh, various systems, whether it be manual or real time. We do feel like we're in a reasonable position at the moment. Yeah, I mean. I think Jason will get you a long, long way. Uh, and then the beauty of Codable is that you can just swap it out, right? If it's yeah. it's a detail of how you serialize your data structures mostly and allows you to just swap it out for something better if you have special needs around um, size and perhaps speed as well then. Great. My second package is Typography Kit by uh, Russ Butler. And this is not a new package at all, but it did just have a major new release three days ago. So uh, it's been in development actually for five years, uh, which is a long time for, uh, for, for any package, but it's a little bit like what we were talking about with the design system for the, uh, for the package index, actually. It allows you to, put, to create standard look and feel across your application using custom fonts, but also supporting dynamic type, uh, which is something that has has become easier over the years, but certainly five years ago, I don't think it was even possible five years ago. Certainly this, this solved a big problem at the time. And this week's release of it adds colors into the mix. So you can still specify a custom font and have it react to dynamic type changes and look a bit a standard look across your application, but you can now also add standard colors for text and standard you know, secondary, primary and secondary colors for text and fallback colors, things like that. And, and I think that's a nice extension. You know, it's quite easy when you create a package to want to keep adding stuff to it, but and sometimes that can be the wrong choice. But I think this 
looks like a really solid extension of keeping it within what the original package was intended to do, which is create a standard look and feel for your application. And typography and colors definitely go hand in hand. And so I thought this was a great extension uh, of that. Really nice, yeah. And I see it has support for Swift UI as well, right? Which is... It does. Mm -hmm. Really nice. And UIKit. Yeah, I, I, you know, five years, uh, that was probably... Of course, five, five years there was no Swift UI, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My second pick is called, it's also about uh, text. Um, it's called Rich String Kit uh, by Robbie, Robbie Moyer. And this is a decorative DSL for building rich text in Swift, um, as the description says. And that's really nice. I mean, the the selling point really is just if you look in the readme, it gives you a NS attributed string definition, you know, to create a short paragraph of text with certain styling, you know, a font of a certain size, a bolded font element, a logo attachment. And I'm trying to read through the Swift attributed string declaration of it, and I find it really hard to pick out what the actual embellishments are. There's a range that does something are strong, so that's uh, that is emphasized. If you read by comparison the DSL or result builder made attributed string, you can just read it. You know that you see a plain text part, then there's a uh, Swift label with an attachment, a foreground color change, and a bold system font being applied. And that's that's a really nice use case for result builders making something very easy and readable and extensible by the, uh, by extension because the declaration reads really well and emphasizes the parts that you're actually configuring. So all the machinery of, of setting up the different data structures that you need are hidden away and you can really focus in on the data that you're actually presenting. Yeah, I think when we first got result builders, everybody wanted to use a result builder for everything and suddenly <laughs> everything was a result builder but there are some good there are some really solid good use cases and this sounds like one of them yeah so that's um rich string kit by robbie moyer fantastic so my final package for this week is that number kit which um is by frederick jack and <laughs> this is a package that i think is one of those where it's the perfect use for a package because if there's one thing that I never want to do, it's write a formatter or a validator for validating VAT. It is one of those tasks that I am extremely happy that somebody else has picked up. <laughs> and that's what Frederick has done with, uh, with this. So I have in the past, and in fact, I do still use this on uh, the iOS dev jobs website. I have integrated the, the online VAT number checker there is the EU run a, uh, a VAT number checking API service that you can use and you pass it a VAT number and it, it will not only check whether it's valid, it will check whether it's real, um, which is a, a great service, but that obviously requires an online connection and all the rest of it. What this does is it takes an enormous number of countries, in fact, I think all of the European countries, and has all of the rules for their VAT numbers. And it's the kind of thing that not everybody's going to need this package, but if you need it, this is going to save you so much time. Because one of the things that uh, is difficult about this is just finding all the different formats for these numbers. Yeah. Does it also check online? Does it have the option to validate it like fully or, or is that out of scope? I don't believe it does. I think this is purely a validation library and not a an actual check. Right. 
interesting. So it's the kind of thing that this this actually popped onto my radar a little a couple of weeks ago, and and I was toying with whether to even mention it because it is so niche. But it's the kind of thing that I I love packages like this because I never I never want to write that code. Yeah. <laughs> so I I want to give my thanks to Frederick to, for solving that uh, problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a perfect use case for a dependency, right? This is the stuff exactly. You, yeah. you just want to have someone else deal with. But it's it's also you just get the, all of the changes for free whenever there are, whenever there are updates to these uh, to these formats, which is fairly rare with VAT numbers, I think. But uh, still, yeah, nice. Right, my third pick is called Swifty Creatives by Yuki Kuwashima. So I'm I'm just going to read the disc description. It's a bit hard to describe what this package does. Creative coding framework for Swift, built on Apple's Metal inspired by processing. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> this probably doesn't tell you much, but um, if you look at the readme, it demos what it does. Uh, and the description in general is a bit sparse, but I, I find it really interesting just for the demos that it shows. Think of the kind of package where you can define geometrical structures and then animate them or create them procedurally, uh, variations of them. And this is sort of what the examples demonstrate. Um, the first one is lots of different cubes, rectangles, arranged and they're rotating, they're semi-translucent. It looks really interesting. Uh, you can imagine all sorts of use cases for this kind of thing, whether it be an animated logo or a loading spinner or certain explorations. Maybe you want to show disk size breakdowns by the with these boxes, that sort of stuff. Graphing, there are some examples that show 3D bar graphs are probably aren't the, the greatest um, graphing tool in the world. The applications for those are really <laughs> they're probably more for demonstration purposes than actual use, but it's it shows what the library can do. Um, and there are various other examples on that page. And it goes, you know, it's just rotating text, um, showing a nice little tree. It's a bit like Fractal, where tree structures being created. I think these are called Lindenmeyer systems. And one interesting thing about this package is it also has two example projects that it links to, which in themselves are interesting. The The first one is about this tree that I just talked about, this Lindenmeyer system, which is a, an app where you can configure creation parameters. So the color or the, I guess, the number of nodes and, you know, the branching you control, how many branches it creates. And it gives you various, very different shapes of the tree that it creates. Interesting tool just to look at. And I presume uh, I can imagine you're building that and playing with that is, is also, also quite interesting. And the other example is a it's called Stable Fluids, and this is a sort of plane, and I guess you, you can use touch input to poke the plane, and the plane is effectively a fluid, and then it sort of swooshes around and creates waves and stuff, and it's, it's really interesting what this package apparently allows you to do with this sort of stuff, and it's based on, on metal, so I suppose it's quite performant. I think does its its name justice, Swift Creative. I can see someone who's who's good at this sort of stuff uh, to create really interesting um, visualizations. Well, and that's and that's the thing with processing is that I mean processing has been around for a long time now, and I'm sure that when the people who created processing first created it had no idea what it would be used to create in the future. And if you look at some of the things that people are doing with processing these days, uh, it is unbelievable. And you can create beautiful, beautiful art, all animated and do whatever you want it to do. And so 
this feels like if there is a if if it's if it was inspired by processing and certainly looking at these two examples, there is potentially a very bright future ahead for possibilities of a package like this. Yeah. And just a quick word, one other note that I made. It looks like this is it gives you a language sort of similar to core graphics, where you know you can create your primitives and structure them. Just that it uses metal for rendering and it has a Swift UI interface. So you can create this I think these yeah these objects are called sketches so you can create a sketch and then plug that sketch into a Swift UI view with certain camera and uh, drawing configurations and it'll it'll do its thing so it's, it looks quite really interesting there we go so I think that just about wraps it up for another episode of Swift Package Indexing was there anything else that you had before we finish no that's it um, I think we should perhaps mention as part of our outro a couple of links maybe so we have a discord we'll put a link in the show notes we also have a an account uh, on, on Mastodon the Swift Package Index at mass.to mas.to and we'll put that link in the show notes as well and I think we should maybe also give a shout out if you have any suggestions, comments, questions about the podcast, hit us up. Maybe you have packages to recommend. Um, that might be interesting. And we should also say hello to the, the few people who heard our promotion of the Discord last time, came into the Discord and said that they heard it on the podcast. So hello to you all uh, who did that. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Stop by, say hi. All right. Well, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye.